0: you would, to Matthew chapter 3, and then put your finger in Luke chapter 3. Two parallel passages, and we're going to look at both of them. Still early in our study of the harmony of the Gospels, life of Jesus, the ministry of Jesus. Matthew records in chapter 3, verse 1, in those days John the Baptist came Preaching in the desert of Judea and saying, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is near. This is he who was spoken of through the prophet Isaiah, a voice of one calling in the desert Prepare the way for the Lord, make straight paths for him. John's clothes were made of camel's hair, and he had a leather belt around his waist. His food was locusts and wild honey. People went out to him from Jerusalem and all Judea and the whole region of the Jordan. Confessing their sins, they were baptized by him in the Jordan River. But when he saw many of the Pharisees and the Sadducees coming to where he was baptizing, he said to them, You brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the coming wrath? Produce fruit in keeping with repentance. And do not think you can say to yourselves, We have Abraham as our father. I tell you that out of these stones, God can raise up children for Abraham. The axe is already at the root of the trees. And every tree that does not produce good fruit will be cut down and thrown into the fire. Look with me at Luke chapter 3, the parallel passage. Beginning at verse 7. John said to the crowds coming out to be baptized by him, you brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the coming wrath, produce fruit in keeping with repentance. And do not begin to say to yourselves, we have Abraham as our father. For I tell you that out of these stones, God can raise up children for Abraham. The axe is already at the root of the trees. And every tree that does not produce good fruit will be cut down and thrown into the fire. What should we do then? The crowd asked. John answered, the man who has two tunics should share with him who has none. And the one who has food should do the same. Tax collectors also came to be baptized. Teacher, they asked, what should we do? Don't collect any more than you are required to, he told them. And then some soldiers asked him, and what should we do? He replied, don't extort money and don't accuse people falsely. Be content with your pay. Two parallel passages. Matthew and Luke record John's message John's message was, among other things, a call to repentance, clearly, and a baptism to signal that repentance. John's baptism was called a baptism of repentance. And that repentance was to evidence an inner change of their mind and heart. When you repent, there must be an inner change. That's the dynamic of your life that moves your life in a whole new direction. An outward act would symbolize that change. That's, that's the whole point of the baptism. And more importantly, it would indicate a manner of life, a brand new way of living. that clearly demonstrates that you are changed, that you are in fact a different person. You came out a sinner. You leave a transformed person. And the whole way you live is evidence of the reality of that change. May I suggest to you that repentance is absolutely key. Repentance is at the very heart of the gospel message. By that I mean salvation is granted only to those who repent of their sin and confess Jesus Christ as the only Savior and Lord. Luke says over in Acts chapter four, there is no other name under heaven given to men by which they must be saved. That name is Jesus There's only one Savior, but you cannot believe and you cannot receive him as your Savior unless first you have repented of your sin. You've acknowledged that you're a sinner and you confess those sins and repent of them. It is impossible to truly preach the good news of forgiveness and grace without calling sinners to repent. We want the forgiveness. We want the grace. Isn't that true? But you got to know that you need the forgiveness and you need the grace And hence, that comes with repentance. Now, John's message, I think, clearly stands in contrast to the message that many people preach today of uh, easy believism. Well, just believe, or cheap grace, as as it's known. And it characterizes much of today's watered-down, feel-good preaching and teaching. A lot of people come to church simply because they want to feel good. They want to know, they just want to feel good. A lot of us have grief and trials and difficulties in our life and those are part of life. That just comes with the territory of being here. But our comfort comes in the knowledge that God uses those things. He's working in those things for our betterment. It just to simply try to make people feel better and to say nice things uh, is a shallow way to preach the gospel and it is no gospel at all. It's deficient preaching. It strips the gospel of its warning to sinners that they have uh, disobeyed, they have broken God's law, a holy God. They're guilty before a holy God. We can't underscore that enough. If people are to understand and believe and benefit by the good news, they must understand the bad news. Paul talks about that in Romans chapter 1 when he speaks of the wrath of God being revealed from heaven against all godlessness and wickedness. You've got to understand the bad news. And the bad news is that we are sinners. We are guilty of our holy God. We cannot at all imagine ourselves as necessarily good people before God in in an absolute righteousness. And that we are guilty and we face his wrath, we face his judgment in eternal hell unless we repent. Shallow preaching without a biblical call to repentance will produce a shallow, superficial, non-saving response. And the tragedy of that, it leaves many, many people with a false sense of security. How many here this morning want to be absolutely assured of the fact that if you died today, you would go to heaven? How many want that, that certainty, that assurance? And the reality is, is that there is a false security. There are people who think they're saved and they're not really saved because they've never ever really truly repented. They've never been convicted of their sin. Listen to what Jesus says in Matthew chapter seven. He says some terrifying things. He says, enter through the narrow gate. For wide is the gate and broad is the road that leads to destruction and many enter through it. I want to submit to you Because he uses the word enter, that many enter the broad way. I'm, I'm suggesting that that is very possibly a reference to a false sense of security. That they enter into what they think is salvation, but it's not really salvation. It really is the way to destruction. He goes on in that passage and he says, But small is the gate, and narrow the road that leads to life, and only a few find it. So we're, we're all searching. Human beings, we're all searching for something. Is that a fair statement? We're all looking, we're all searching, you know, whether it's I want to be rich, I want to be famous, I want to, I want to have this, I want to have that. We're all searching for something. And you could really say we're all searching for salvation, but the salvation expressed through our own understanding of what salvation is. I'll be saved, I'll be happy if I have lots of money. I'll be saved, I'll be happy if I have lots of this or lots of that. Am I making sense? So we're all really searching. And sometimes people are, most of the time, he says, most of the most of people are searching for the wrong thing. They're searching for life in the wrong way. It's like the old saying, you know, a lot of people are searching for love in all the wrong places. He says, few find the way to life. Do I know that I'm saved? Do I know that if I died today, I would go to heaven with absolute certainty? Or am I living with a false sense of security? Again, further on in that chapter, I think some of the most terrifying words in the New Testament. Jesus says, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. Even though people will say, Lord, they'll acknowledge him. They'll know who he is. They'll recognize him. He says, not all who say, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but only he who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. He goes on to say, many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, again, emphasis. Did we not prophesy in your name and in your name drive out demons and perform many miracles? Didn't we do all this great stuff? And he says, then I will tell them plainly. Never did I know you. Away from me, not you doers of good as you think you are. Away from me, you doers of what? Evil. Now, I want to suggest to you, those are terrifying words. (laughs) Those are sobering words. But they speak to what I'm suggesting is, a false sense of security. Here, people believe they're in. They're, they're, Lord, Lord, look at what we did. They're justifying themselves before the Lord. Should you and I have to justify ourselves before the Lord? No, because we are already, what? Justified through the finished work of Jesus Christ. So all I'm suggesting is that this shallow preaching without repentance, without people coming to understand the need for their own personal repentance leads to a false sense of security, a false salvation. And that sets people up. Now, as we saw last time, John's ministry was as Jesus' forerunner. He was called of God to go before Jesus to announce Jesus' uh, coming and involved in preparing the hearts of the people to receive him. Now, Israel at this point in history, they they were anticipating the Messiah's arrival. It has been 400 years since they have heard from any prophet. It's been 400 years since a prophet even prophesied in Israel. The last one was Malachi. And the Jews were acutely aware of the prophecies of the Messiah, and more particularly the prophecy in Malachi 3.1. And it's in Malachi 3.1 where Jesus himself, through the prophet Malachi, says this, See, I will send my messenger who will prepare the way before me. So the Jews already knew that there would be somebody, an Elijah-like prophet, an Elijah-like person who would come preparing the way. That's how they would know that whoever he pointed to was the Messiah. Now, of course, the Jews had a different expectation of the Messiah, but that's another story. In the words of Isaiah's prophecy, John was the voice of one calling in the desert. Prepare the way for the Lord. Make straight paths for him. Now we know historically, just as, a, as, a, as an ancient monarch would, would tour his, his, his kingdom, he would send people on ahead to straighten out and remove the obstacles from the roads, make a straight path for him. But the imagery here in Isaiah's prophecy really pr- pictures the work of preparing a pathway through the wilderness of the heart, because it's really the human heart. Is the human heart a good and healthy thing? I'm not. I'm not speaking about physical health. No, the human heart is what. It's despicable. It's wicked. Now that may come as a surprise to some, but this is what God. This is God's judgment about the human heart. This is our condition. We are. We are just despicable inside. And so Isaiah's prophecy speaks to preparing a way through a pathway through the wilderness of the heart. The, 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 the filling into the valleys or the ravines. Picture is bringing light into those hidden sins of the, of the heart. It's just like you've got these little crevices, these little valleys, these little hidden places of the heart that, that God's light, and the conviction of the Spirit would show on those things. Part of preparing the way for the Lord to come into your life. Bringing down the mountains and the hills in that prophecy symbolizes the humbling of human pride. Are we prideful? Would everybody here admit to being prideful? Who really likes to be told what to do? Is that our favorite thing? No, we just kind of bristle at that a little bit, don't we? But you see, the, the, the our pride has to be brought low, doesn't it? The making crooked paths straight that he speaks of speaks of straightening out anything that's perverse or twisted or deceitful. And those things are straightened out by confession and repentance. There is nothing better for the soul than to confess. You've got something that's wrong in your life, something's wrong in your heart, an attitude to confess it and repent of it. I had a conversation with someone not too long ago who was carrying a burden for quite some time and laboring over it. And it was part of producing uh, physical symptomologies. And so this individual just confessed to me this issue. And it wasn't until a couple months later that... Uh, They they said to me, you know that when when I I realized when I confessed that and I lifted that burden off my shoulder by just being open and sharing it with me, I I, I began to feel so much better, so much freer. My life, in fact, uh, they use the word free. I feel free, and that's really a dynamic. You straighten out the crooked and and, uh, and perverse and twisted things by confession and repentance, smoothing the rough ways. That metaphor also would refer to to removing any, any hindrance, any obstacle in our path, or rather in the path of the Lord coming into our life. Things like self-love, love of money, love of the world, lust, apathy, indifference, unbelief, anything that might obstruct the Lord's entrance into the heart. We smooth the way for him to come. And so Isaiah's prophecy, John uses that and calls people basically to repentance. And in the light of the ever-present danger of false repentance, I think you'll agree that it is absolutely crucial to be able to distinguish false repentance from true repentance. Does that make sense? I want to make sure that my repentance is true. I don't want to think my repentance is a false repentance. How do I know How do I know that my repentance is true? Well, in both Matthew's passage and Luke's passage that we read, both chapter 3, both verse 8, coincidentally. John warned the Jewish leaders, he warned the crowds alike, to produce fruit in keeping with what? Their repentance. How do you know? It's the fruit. Jesus will say again in the Sermon on the Mount, you'll know them by their fruit. How do I know my repentance is real? Because there is fruit produced. The religious leaders were the Pharisees and the Sadducees. Religiously, politically, socially, they had almost nothing in common. They were diametrically opposed in almost every every way. The Pharisees were conservative and ritualistic. The Sadducees were liberal and they were rationalistic. The Pharisees were strict separatists, whereas the Sadducees were compromising collaborators and more particularly collaborators with the Romans. The Pharisees were from the common people where the Sadducees were aristocratic and they were wealthy. In fact, under the leadership of Annas and Caiaphas, the high priests, it was the Sadducees who ran the temple franchises, the money changing, and the selling of the sacrificial animals. Both groups would have members in the Sanhedrin. Both groups would be represented in the priesthood. Both groups would have members among the scribes. And that they were almost in constant opposition except for two things. Can you think of what the two things might be? The first one would be what? They were united in opposition against Jesus. And secondly, both groups believed that their reward was based on self-effort, on their works. The Pharisees expected their reward in heaven. The Sadducees expected their reward here on earth. But both trusted in their own good deeds, their own self-effort and works. Both groups would emphasize the superficial and the non essential rather than that which is internal and essential. God tells us, Jesus says, He, he, does, he tells the Pharisees, He says, You know, you're, 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 you're all concerned about the external stuff. I mean, you, you, you tithe even your, your uh, condiments. He says, But what does He desire, really? What does God desire? A broken and contrite heart. He desires mercy and compassion. The things that are internal, not just simply external things. So you've got the leaders, the religious leaders of the people. They don't have a genuine concern for the inner spiritual life. Jesus calls this the the yeast, if you will, of the Pharisees and the Sadducees. The hypocritical, self-serving, dead externalism. And so this is the condition of the religious leadership. Is it any wonder that he calls them a what? A brood of vipers. He just, he just calls a spade a spade, doesn't he? And then Matthew says that the people came confessing their sins and were baptized by John in the Jordan River. He says to both the crowds, he says to the religious leaders, both groups, You brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the coming wrath? Not exactly designed to win friends and influence people. Would you agree? This is not in the Andrew Carnegie course. The Pharisees and Sadducees, they come out. But neither gospel writer says they came out to be baptized. We're not told that. So what would they possibly come out for? Well, if you understand their character and what they're all about, they come out to see John to check him out. Either he's simply a curiosity or if in fact he is a prophet like some of the people are saying he's a prophet, they want to check him out and find out. Now, they probably don't want to find out he's a prophet just so that they can receive his prophecy. I suspect that if John was a genuine prophet, then possibly they could gain his approval. What better thing than for the religious group to be approved by the prophet? And they could parade the pretense of repentant spirituality, and they could even possibly capitalize on or even maybe take over the movement as religious opportunists. Can you just picture that? Here they are, they're watching, and they hear John preach, and they step up and they say, John, we'll take over from this point. We really know how to run the religion. No, not at all. So their motivation probably is not in what it ought to be, and hence they're called a brood of vipers also. They were not seeking God's truth. They were not seeking God's working in their own lives. They were not repentant. They had not confessed their sins. They had not changed at all. They were not genuinely seeking true righteousness that delivers from judgment. They were the same smug, self-righteous hypocrites they had always been. What a tragedy. What a tragedy. Question. What do you think would be a legitimate motive for repentance? Now think what would be a legitimate motive for repentance? Why would you repent? What's the context? What's John saying to the crowds and what's John saying to the leaders? What's coming? Judgment, wrath. So therefore, if that's the context, what would be a legitimate motive to repent? Fear of what? Fear of God's wrath, absolutely. Should we be fearful of the wrath of God? Sure, yeah. Now, the point is, sin must be dealt with. How many agree? You can't just ignore sin. You can't just sweep it under the carpet. You can't just pretend like it's a minor inconvenience. Sin has to be dealt with. This is God's purpose. And it has to be dealt with not only because it creates problems in our life. It has to be dealt with because of its eternal consequences. Sin will destroy us. And that's our problem. That is our problem. Whether you want to hear it or not, whether you want to acknowledge it or not, that is man's fundamental problem. We are sinful. We sin because we're sinful. We are at heart rebels. We are from the very beginning by nature, objects of God's wrath. That's our condition. We have no hope in and of ourselves. We can't credit ourselves to God for anything at any time. And John warned of God's coming wrath. The Bible clearly, unmistakably teaches in graphic terms, the reality of eternal punishment in a place called hell. I talk to people all the time who, quite frankly, confess they don't believe in hell. What do you believe in? Well, we don't believe in hell. Why? Well, because God is love, and he's a good God, and he would never create a place like that and send people to hell. You don't know God. You only know one side of his nature. You have no idea of his holiness and his justice. And his justice necessitates that sin be punished. That's why Jesus was at the cross. Sin had to be dealt with once in all, and for all. God can't just wink at us and say, well, you know, it doesn't matter. We do that for each other, don't we? You know, we say, you know, I'm so sorry I offended you. And we say, well, don't worry about it. No, no big deal. It is a big deal. You can't diminish someone who comes and apologizes. You have to acknowledge him. You have to say, thank you. I appreciate that. I know what it took for you to come and say that to me. Sin has to be dealt with. Absolutely. Jesus talked. Do you think Jesus talked more about heaven or more about hell? What do you think? Sevilla vote. How many think did Jesus talk more about heaven? I get two takers. How many think Jesus talked more about hell? Yeah, he talked more about hell. He talked more about hell than he did about heaven. You would think, here's Jesus wanting to talk about it. Do we want to hear about hell or heaven? I want to hear more about heaven. I read a book a few years ago entitled Heaven, a big, thick book. I never appreciated heaven more after I read that book than ever before. It just whetted my appetite for heaven. I don't want to hear about hell. And yet Jesus wants me to know about it. He talks more about hell than he does about heaven. And he describes hell in Mark's gospel as a place where their worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. Does that sound like anguish to you? Painful, ongoing anguish? Some of us have experienced loss in our life, loss of someone close and significant to us. And we understand the emptiness in the pit of our stomach. We understand that it's almost like a gnawing away and you just can't make it go away no matter how much pepto bismol you take you can't it's a constant it's it's in jesus words it's that worm that worm that keeps gnawing it's that that burning that never goes away forever and ever and ever what a horrible thought no relief over in matthew's gospel He speaks of hell as the outer darkness where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. I don't know that you and I have ever experienced the kind of grief and sorrow that causes us to weep ceaselessly and gnash our teeth. Probably the closest thing that we could come to experiencing that would be regret, ongoing regret over some terrible, terrible things we've done, mistakes we've made, over which we continually recall and we continually kick ourselves. I knew better. I knew better. Can anybody relate to what I'm just saying? But in this case, you're in the outer darkness where there is no light, no hope, no voice, no sound, no other person. You can't see anything. It's the absolute epitome of insecurity and you're weeping and you're gnashing your teeth because there was, you'll be remembering that there was a point in time and space and history when you could have done something about it. And for all the rest of eternity, weeping and gnashing your teeth, thinking, what was I thinking? Why didn't I? I was so prideful, I was so arrogant. And again, in Matthew's Gospel, Jesus describes hell as the fiery furnace. Not a pleasant experience. Not a pleasant place. John in Revelation pictures hell as a place of eternal torment forever and ever. Now there's a doctrine known as the doctrine of annihilment, uh, and, and that, that says that, that punishment isn't forever and ever and ever, that God would just punish people for a little while, and then they go out of existence. That's not what the Bible teaches. We want to compromise. We want to just somehow soften God's punishment and, 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 and defend God's reputation. He's, he wouldn't ever do that. Yes, he would. Why? Because sin is so grievous in his sight. And when you think about it, It's actually an act of his grace to allow a person to continue to live rather than annihilate them, take them out of existence. Think about that one for a little while. Now, I want to suggest to you also that the notion that some people have that the suffering in this world is all the hell anyone will ever know is is absolutely terribly and tragically wrong. You've heard it. Maybe you've said it. You know... This is, I'm going through hell here. No, you're not. You're going through terrible trials and difficulties and suffering and pain and grief and sorrow. Yes, admittedly, but this is not hell. Not even approximating it. Now John's decidedly non-sinner friendly characterization of the crowds and their leaders as a brood of vipers reflects a couple of things. It reflects the truth that there is more to repentance than simply scrambling to avoid the fires of divine wrath. What do I mean by that? Here you have the crowds coming to John, accompanied by their leaders, hordes of shallow superficial repenters flocking to hear John. But as he well is, is well aware they were really not interested in changing their nature. See, this is the crux of the matter. I know something's wrong with me. Have you ever said this, I'm working on myself? You ever said that? I'm trying to make myself a better person. How many know you cannot make yourself a better person? I don't care, all the dollars you spend in therapy, you cannot make yourself a better person. How do you get to be a better person? You repent and turn to the Lord Jesus. He makes you a better person. He does it. So John is well aware that these people are not at all interested in changing their nature. By denouncing them as a brood of vipers, he identifies them with their father, who? Satan, the devil, absolutely. Is, is Satan described in the Bible as a serpent? Oh yeah, absolutely. He's identified with the serpent in Genesis Chapter 3, and at the end of the book, in Revelation, he's described as what? The serpent of old. So he's described as the serpent. And John is identifying all these people with their father, the devil. Even Jesus, in John's gospel, If you go back in chapter 8, verse 44, where the people and the the leaders are are defending themselves and justifying themselves, and they're saying, "We're, we're God's children, and Abraham's our father. And he says, no, you are of your father the devil. Man, how would you like to have had that said to you? The point is, their superficial repentance and their vicious, hostile, poisonous natures revealed that they were, in fact, children of the devil. The very natures... And they intended to carry their hypocrisy even to the extent of submitting to John's baptism out of whatever corrupt motives they may have had. Uh, You you just have to understand, John's take on things. Here these people are coming to be baptized and he's calling them what they are, a brood of vipers, liars, deceptive, hypocritical, no real intent on being repentant just accustomed to going through the religious uh, movements. The marks of a truly repentant heart, John says, are fruit in keeping with repentance. Produce fruit. Produce fruit. That's what we look for. We are fruit checkers, are we not? We're fruit checkers. True repentance Not only should, but true repentance will have correspondingly genuine fruit. It will be demonstrated both in attitudes and actions. If you are truly repentant, if you are born again, there is a whole new impetus to your life, is there not? You're not really the same person anymore. You've repented. You were going in this direction. You were believing this way. You were holding these attitudes, but you repented. And now you're going in a new direction. You have new attitudes. And those attitudes are working out in a brand new lifestyle. You are different. And that's given evidence to in your life. You want to hear that. You want to hear people say, you're different. I remember going to all my buddies when, after I'd gotten saved. And, and they'd heard I got religion. And I would take my Bible and I would, you know, say, I'm I'm born again, I want to talk to you about Jesus. And they'd say, yeah, we heard you got religion. And they would mock me and laugh at me. They'd say, we're happy you found something that works for you, you know. Just leave us alone. But one by one, they came to me privately and they would say to me, you know what, you are different. And I like you better. A validation of what God had done in my life. It wasn't me. It was what God had done. You want to hear that. You want to hear people tell you, you know, you're different. There's something about you. You're more attractive. You're safer to be around. All those kinds of remarks. Every once in a while, I encourage somebody to do what I call a self-case study. And that's simply, and, and it takes a fair amount of courage to do this, you, you pick out 20 people who know you really well, and not just your favorite people, and you tell them, you know, I'd like you to, I'd like you to, to get together with me, and, and I want us to, I want you to tell me about me. Now, some people would just absolutely relish for that, they can hardly wait to tell you about you. And you just have to gear yourself up for it. You know? I mean, you're going to hear some things you may not like to hear. But that's probably one of the best things you can do in your life. And especially if you're, if you're a relatively recent Christian, you go back to people who knew you before you are a Christian and have them give you that kind of feedback and see if, in fact, they don't see a difference in you. Am I making sense? The point is, Produce fruit in keeping with repentance. You say you've repented, you say you're born again, let's see it by the fruit. That's all John is saying to these people. Those who claim to know Christ, who claim to be born again, will demonstrate a new way of living that corresponds to their new birth, to their new life. You can't help it because the Holy Spirit in you compels you to do it. Question. What is it that motivates your faith? Think about that for a second. What is it that motivates your faith? Just think of your own life, think your faith. What, what motivates your faith? Is it fear? Fear of the future? Fear of punishment? Or is it a desire to grow and to be more like Jesus? Now, I think it's fair to say that all of us, at least in the the beginning, we fear God's wrath. I don't want to go to hell. I don't want punishment. So I straighten up real quick, right? But that's not sufficient to carry your faith and to motivate your faith through the rest of your Christian life. It's not sufficient. Because you're constantly living with a sense of insecurity and fear. As we said earlier, we want to live with a sense of security, do we not? I want to know that I'm, that I'm, I'm safe with him. So my motive then has to shift. A sign that you're maturing in Christ is not that you're motivated by fear anymore. A sign that you're maturing in Christ is the fact that you're realizing you're becoming more like him. You want to be more like him. I want to be more like Jesus. Should the church be more like Jesus? Absolutely. If we were in fact more like Jesus rather than like the religious people or these shallow crowds that came out to John, The world would not marginalize us. The church would be a powerful force for righteousness, not just a political force, a force for righteousness in our society, in our world. But we've got far too many shallow Christians. I I, I remind you of the poll done amongst the Baptists a few years ago. I think I shared with you this last week that the, the, the Baptist leaders surveyed all the Baptist churches, and they want to know how many people were baptized, how many people were in attendance, how many people were serving, and so forth and so forth and so forth. And they calculated and had all these numbers and figures, and they came up with a final conclusion that probably, conservatively, half the people in Baptist churches weren't even saved. They weren't even really Christians. And these are Baptists. These are your classic fundamentalist, Evangelical people. What about all the other churches? If you can't even, if you can't even (laughs) trust the Baptist church, what about all the other churches? You see, these people coming out to be baptized by John, they just wanted to escape eternal punishment. They didn't want to grow. And John had harsh words for them. He knew that God values reformation over ritual. They were into ritual. Okay, let me just go through the baptism here. No, no, no. God's interested in reformation, isn't he? He wants our life reformed. You have to say to yourself, is my life reformed? Am I living a new life? Or am I someone who is on that broad way to destruction? Have I found truly the narrow road? I echo the Apostle Paul's counsel and advice at the end of 2 Corinthians. He says, check yourself out to make sure you are of the faith. Is it good to periodically step back and reevaluate? I do it all the time. I think, okay, now what do I believe? Okay, I I, I go go down through all my theology. I clarify it all. What do I believe? Okay, uh, this is what I was. I don't do that anymore. I don't even like that anymore. I have no desire for that anymore. I'm over here now. Okay, (sighs) good, I'm in. I do. I go through all those mental gymnastics. It's a good thing to do, rather than just simply saying, taking everything for granted. We need to do that. Is your faith motivated by a desire for a whole new life? Or is it simply desire motivated by fear? A life that's pleasing God. God, I want to please you. Jesus said what? I desire to do your will. Did he not say that? Or something akin to that? Is that our desire? As you mature more and more, you will find yourself, Lord, your will be done. And you'll find yourself letting off all the fears of saying your will be done. You'll understand more and more what it means, not my will, but yours. You'll be growing as a Christian. This is fruit in keeping With repentance. John knew that the people were thinking. He knew exactly what they're thinking. He's telling them, Repent, repent. But they're saying to themselves, What? We're Abraham's offspring. They believed simply by being Jewish, by being descended from Abraham, they had a right to the blessings of Abraham just by their birthright. They were guaranteed God's blessings. Somewhere over the years, no one knows when this happened, actually, the Jews erroneously decided that the promises given to Abraham and then through Isaac and Jacob would guarantee then to all their descendants, no matter how they acted, no matter what they believed, by just by virtue of their descendancy from Abraham, guaranteed God's blessings. And John's telling them, descent from Abraham was not a passport to heaven simply being Jewish, did not assure them a place in God's kingdom. How was Abraham justified before God? How was Abraham justified before God? By faith. Genesis, we read it. Romans chapter 4, we read it. And Abraham was justified. Abraham believed God. He just believed God. He was justified by faith. Now, if Abraham was going to, the only way he could get justified was by faith, then the descendants of Abraham, could they be justified any other way? By descendancy? No. They had to also individually be justified by faith as their father, Abraham. The Jews considered the Gentiles to be the occupants of hell. No Jew would go to hell, according to their reckoning. In fact, some of the rabbis taught that Father Abraham sat at the very gate of hell and that as people passed by on their way to hell, if there was any Jew somehow slipping through on the way to hell, that Father Abraham was there there as the guard and he would pluck them out of the line and save them. Now, this is is how committed they were to to that proposition. So the Jews generally considered Gentiles to be the occupants of hell. Gentiles were spiritually lifeless, spiritually hopeless. They were, there was an expression for Gentiles among the Jews. They were dead stones. Dead stones, as far as a right relationship with God was concerned. Dead stones. Now look into the passage that Luke and Matthew record. Does John say anything about stones? Yes, he does. What does he say? He's saying to the Jews who are claiming justification because of their descendancy from Abraham, and he says, you can't do that. He says what? God can raise up from these stones, and no doubt in the bottom of the river bed in which they're standing are stones. He would play on that expression. They all understood what he was saying. God could raise up from these stones descendants to Abraham. Wow. Is that a rebuke to their religiosity? Is that a rebuke to their narrow-mindedness? Only those who produce fruit in keeping with repentance would qualify for God's coming kingdom. Even the apostle Paul records this in Romans chapter 9. Speaking to the Jews, speaking to Israel, he says, not all who are descended from Israel are Israel, nor are they all Abraham's descendants. And then over in Galatians chapter 3, verse 29, he says it, he just puts it all together for us. He says, if you belong to Christ, then you are what? Abraham's descendants, you're Abraham's seed, and heirs to the promise. You're only a descendant of Abraham truly if you are a believer in Jesus. And John followed his exhortation to repent with a warning, a warning of severe consequences of failing to repent. He puts it this way, the axe. Notice this, the axe is already at the root. In other words, judgment is here and it's here now. The kingdom of God is at hand. Get it together. Repent now. Don't delay one more instant. The ax is already at the root of the trees, and every tree that does not produce fruit will be cut down and what? Thrown into the fire. Picture this. At the end of every harvest season, the farmer would go through his orchards, he'd go through his vineyards, And every tree that had not produced good fruit, every vineyard that had not produced good fruit, he would cultivate it, he would water it, he would fertilize it to make sure that maybe next season it would bear good fruit. Right? Wrong. No. He would cut it out. Cut it down. He didn't have time for that, nor did he want these fruitless trees and vines to suck the nutrients out of the soil from the trees and vines that did produce good fruit. He got rid of them. He didn't coddle them. Now, you and I would coddle them, wouldn't we? We'd feed that tree, we'd pray over that tree. (laughs) We don't just cut it down and plant a new one. No, that would be the farmer would do. A fruitless tree was a worthless tree. A fruitless tree was a useless tree, fit only to be cut down, thrown into the fire. Fruitless repentance is worthless and useless. It means absolutely nothing to God. You can say all day long, I repent, but if there's no fruit in keeping with that repentance, it means absolutely nothing to God. This is serious stuff. Would you agree with me? The ax, he says, is already at the root. Judgment is at hand. You have no idea if you're going to make it through the day. You could be killed in a car accident. You could fall over from a heart attack. Who knows what happened? You'd be driving down the street and some crazy guy shoots you. It happens every day, doesn't it? We have no guarantee. problem is, the question is, are we ready? Are we prepared? Now, of course, the fruitless tree symbolizes people whose repentance, repentance is, is false repentance. Since they do not bear good fruit, the attitudes, the actions that manifest a genuine righteousness, a genuine love for God, a genuine obedience for his word, these things set us up for judgment. Now, the judgment here is pictured of an individual But if enough individuals fail to repent, it becomes a national issue. This is what happened in Israel when the vast majority of Jews rejected Jesus Christ. And a few decades later, in the year A.D. 70, the acts of divine judgment fell. The Romans came and they destroyed Jerusalem. They burned the temple and they literally slaughtered thousands upon thousands upon thousands of Jews who were then sent into the fire of eternal damnation. The same acts of divine judgment will fall on all who fail to repent, both Jew and Gentile alike. Are John's words sobering? I mean, picture yourself. You're in the crowd. You're listening to these words. The axe is already laid at the root. You're going, whoa. And if you just kind of get it, And there were some people who did get it. John's words to them caused them to reflect. And so some in the crowd said this, what shall we do? What shall we do to manifest genuine repentance? What does it mean to show genuine repentance? Now, he says to the crowd, he says, share what you have with those who have none. Sharing the basic necessities such as food and clothing with those who have needs f- really fulfills the commandment to what? Love our neighbor, which is second only to loving God, the great commandment. He says just, just simply be a giving person, be a gracious person. Share with those who need. If you have something, you see someone need, share with them. Bring forth fruit in keeping with your repentance rather than hoarding everything, keeping it it all together, living with a sense of insecurity. Well, you know, if I don't don't guard my pile, you know, I won't have a pile. You just leave God out of the equation. Give and it will be given to you. If we really believe that, then we can be sharing people. We're bearing fruit in keeping with our repentance. Then John addresses the questions of two very specific groups. And this is fascinating to me that these two groups are identified. What two groups come to him and ask them, what should we do? What's the first group? Tax collectors. You would think these would be the last guys who are going to come and be willing to repent. The tax collectors come. And these are all, remember, these are Jewish outcasts. They're renegades. They're hated by their fellow countrymen. They're despised. They collected taxes for the hated Romans. And they were seen as traitors. They were cut off entirely from the religious life of Israel. Now, John doesn't tell them, he doesn't say, quit your job as a tax collector. Does he tell them to do that? No, it's legitimate for a government to collect taxes from its citizens. But he does tell them what? Not to collect more than they were required to. Now, they normally charged. Uh, and extorted exorbitant amounts of money from their fellow countrymen uh, on behalf of the Roman government. Not only that, but they extracted bribes and kickbacks. They demanded them. And you had to pay. You know why you had to pay? Because they had the might of Rome behind them. They had the Roman army right there, garrisoned right there. So if you, ha- if you hassle the tax collectors, all they do is call the Roman army and they would come and take everything you had throw you in prison. You talk about being between, between a rock and a hard place. So you can understand why they were hated. So he says to them, they could manifest their repentance by treating people fairly and honestly and not abusing their authority. Remember Zacchaeus? Luke chapter 19? Zacchaeus was one of those tax collectors. He, he meets Jesus he comes, Jesus said, I must come to your house. And, and after some conversation, you know, he repents. He says, I give half of all I own to the poor. And he says, if I've cheated anybody, I'll pay him back. How many times? Four times. Is that repentance? Absolutely. What's the second group that comes to John and wants to know how to demonstrate fruit? The soldiers. These are probably the uh, Roman soldiers, probably Gentiles who no doubt had to go out and do crowd management out there in the wilderness. And as they're doing so, they're hearing John preach. They're convicted. And so they say to John, how do we do this? How do we show this? Now, soldiers, you think the tax collectors are bad. The soldiers are really bad. He pointed out three ways. Now, they they regularly abuse their authority and power. And John says to them three things. Three ways which they could manifest genuine repentance. Notice he doesn't tell them to quit the army and say quit being a soldier. He says to them, don't extort money. Literally, it's don't take money by force. And the Greek words imply that they were not to shake the people down for money through intimidation and force. Secondly, nor were they to accuse people falsely by twisting and perverting evidence that would would make the innocent look guilty. And then thirdly, he says, be content with your pay. Be content with your pay. Now, if you're not content with your pay and you had this authority and this power, what could that do for you? Yeah, you could be tempted to what? Abuse your power to get more money. Be content. So he tells tells these three groups things that are really key for them that would give evidence of bearing fruit in keeping with their repentance. And by selecting especially the tax collectors and the soldiers whose lives were typically marked by evil and sin, they were obvious. John is making the general point that true repentance produces a life that is transformed from being characterized by sin to be characterized by virtue. You talk about transformed lives, any tax collector or any soldier that did this, remarkable testimony. So I leave you with this. What changes can you make in your life in sharing what you have? If you're becoming more like Jesus, should we be more gracious, more giving of our time, energy, resources? Yeah, absolutely. Though Jesus was rich, he became poor so that we who are poor could become rich. What changes can you make? What changes can you make in doing your work well and honestly, not cheating your employer or your employees? Maybe you show up early and leave late. Maybe you work harder than everybody else. Maybe you work better than everybody else. You're a Christian. You bring forth fruit in keeping with your repentance. We don't work like the world works. We do our work well. We do it honestly. And what about contentment? Can I grow in my contentment? The Apostle Paul tells us in Philippians, he says, I'm learning the secret of being content in every circumstance I find myself, whether I have much, whether I have little. The secret of life is, among other things, contentment. Am I learning to be content or am I feverish about this and that and the other? Can I trust God? Can I work on faithfully, honestly, well, trusting God, being content with what he chooses to provide for me at any given moment? Beloved, as we obey God's word, as we resist temptation, as we serve others, as we share our faith, we are giving evidence of a life transformed. We are bearing fruit in keeping with our repentance. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you. Thank you for reminding us. Thank you for John's testimony. Thank you for identifying for us once again the need for repentance And without that, there is no salvation. Strengthen us, O God. Cause us to be people truly who are a light in this dark world. People who are gracious and giving. People who are patient and kind. People who are loving, faithful, dependable. People who do our work well, whether it be in our jobs, our schools, just in our own homes the things that have been trusted to us so we'd be good stewards. And Father, help us to be content, mindful that what we have is from your hand. We pray again this morning, your will be done. Just gonna ask you this morning, if you are in a place in your own life right now where you, you really do sense a need for repentance, maybe an attitude, a behavior, a way of life. Maybe you're a Christian, maybe you're not a Christian. But you do know, you can acknowledge God speaking to your heart. There's something in you that says you need to repent of this. You need to to turn away from this. You need to make a change. I'm just going to ask you right now, real quickly, before we dismiss, just identify yourself, just by holding your hand up real high, making a statement. You need to repent. You know who you are. Just go now. Lift those hands up high. Don't be ashamed. Take another second or two. There's still some more in need of repentance. Got a hard heart, angry, unforgiving, embittered. Ask God right now. Say, Lord, I repent. I repent of it. And name the thing you're repenting of. Tell Him and commit to it. God, I repent of this. I turn away from it. It shall have no more place in my life. And you commit to following Him and trusting Him and bringing forth fruit in keeping with your repentance. Do that right now. And then when you've made that commitment, tell Him thank you. Thank you.